1 Thessalonians chapter 2, where we will continue our study in these letters from Paul. As Christians, we have been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ by God who tests our hearts. But if we are to keep this trust, our motives and methods must conform to the message that we preach. Last week, we observed God's power in the progress of the gospel. Noting that when the gospel truly comes to people, it comes by the power of God to transform them into faithful, loving, and hopeful worshipers of the one true God. Tonight, we will focus on the fact that the gospel, though it comes by the power of God, it comes through weak and humble messengers as we consider Paul's own example of gospel ministry. In this chapter in 1 Thessalonians, Paul reveals to us his own heart, as he describes his methods and his motives in bringing the gospel to the Thessalonians. As we consider his ministry then, we will learn to pattern our own evangelistic efforts after his example. And So if you found your place in 1 Thessalonians 2, let me invite you to follow along as I read. I'll read from verse 1 to verse 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Father in heaven, as we consider the message that you have for us this evening in your word, Lord, we ask that you would test us, that you would approve us, that you would entrust to us this glorious gospel that you have given to us and through which you've saved us, that you would also conform us, Lord, to the image of your Son, even as we follow the example of Paul as he imitated Christ. Lord, we pray that you would conform us to this image, that we might become faithful witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ, both in our words and in the life that we live. That we might be people who share the gospel not for our own glory, but for the good of others and for your glory. This we pray, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this passage, Paul makes frequent message to the gospel. In fact, four times we see that he makes reference to the gospel, but we shouldn't take for granted that we know what it means. Very often when Christians are asked to define the gospel or to explain it, we find ourselves at a loss for words. I don't think that the reason for this is that we don't know the gospel. I think that 
Usually this stems from a lack of confidence. We think that our answer will not be sufficient or it won't be quite correct, and so we remain silent. I want to encourage you by helping you to become more confident in your ability to present the gospel. Be, uh, by helping you to formulate an answer to that question, what is the gospel in clear terms? Now, as I stated last week, there is one gospel, but we can present it in a variety of ways. And we saw that it was implied and summarized under two terms in Paul's greeting last week, grace and peace. The gospel teaches us that God grants us salvation through faith in Christ as a free gift of his grace. And a fundamental aspect of our salvation is that we receive peace with God. We were his enemies in our sin, but now he has made peace with us through Christ's death on the cross. So you see in two simple words, we can build from that a clear summary of the gospel. This week, however, I want to draw upon this text in 1 Thessalonians 2, as well as Acts 17, which we looked at last week, to add to this picture. First, let's look at the four references to the gospel in this text. They're not going to define the gospel so much as they're going to give us aspects of the gospel, that is, characteristics of the gospel. You see, in verse 2, we see that Paul presents the gospel as God's gospel, and this fact should give us confidence. He writes, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. We'll return to these verses in short order. But here I merely wish to note that the gospel is God's. Now this, this sense, uh, saying the gospel of God could have a couple different senses. It could be the gospel belonging to God or it could indicate that God is the content of the gospel. It's hard to make a decision and uh, the fact of the matter is that both would be true. Uh, whether uh, only one is supported in this passage, we can support both ideas from, uh, broadly from all of Scripture. God, uh, the, 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 the content of the gospel concerns God's love for us. It concerns what God has accomplished for us. Yet it is his message. Those who share the gospel are merely his messengers. The point that I'm making is that uh, because of this, we can have confidence in the gospel message. It's not ours. It doesn't come by our power. And it doesn't concern what we've done or what we've accomplished. And so we can trust that if God has declared this message, and if it truly concerns him, that it's true, it's his message, and God is true, he speaks truly in all that he says. Therefore, this gospel must be true, and that should buoy our confidence in it. But also, he is the one who causes it to go forth, and that also should buoy our confidence in the gospel, should anchor our boldness as we declare it. This is the gospel of God. And we also see in verse 2 that it is something to be declared. As Paul speaks of having boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. We'll come back to this idea. The second place where we see a reference to the gospel is in verse 4. And there we see that it is something that God has entrusted to Paul. And uh, as a consequence of that, we can we can observe that it's something that God has entrusted to us who have received the gospel as well. That it is, it's a special trust that God gives to his people. He gave it to Paul, he gives it to us. This means that we must faithfully carry out this trust. 
if you were given a, uh, uh, a trust fund to manage, it wasn't yours, but you were entrusted to uh, manage that fund for someone else who would someday receive it, you would be called upon to faithfully execute that task, investing the money, using it wisely for that trust that you had been given. That's why we call it a trust. That's the same idea, or to illustrate this idea. Paul has been entrusted with the gospel of God. And so he must be a faithful, uh, one who carries out that task, that trust, faithfully. We also see in verse 8 a third reference to the gospel. And here we see that the gospel is a treasure to be shared. Paul writes, So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Now Paul here presents the sharing of the gospel as something that's analogous to sharing of one's own self. We can construe this also as, a, as the sharing of some precious treasure, for who values anything more than his own self, you see? This is what Paul is, is, is saying, is that he shared the gospel with them because of his, his affectionate desire for them. And also, he sought to share his own self, his own life, his own gifts, his own uh, service with them. Showing in his life what he was uh, proclaiming here in this letter, that the gospel is a treasure to be shared. In this context, uh, we see that, um, we also see that it's to be shared out of love. We share this good news with others because because it is good news, out of love for them. Fourth, we see that the gospel is to be proclaimed in a manner that is consistent with the message. Here, Paul comes back to this idea that the gospel is something to be declared or something to be proclaimed. In verse 9, he says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. The gospel is something to be declared, and it is something to be proclaimed. These two terms that we see in this passage are synonyms. In this verse, however, the focus is not on Paul's boldness in making that declaration, but rather his humility in the proclamation. Paul proclaimed a message about the relief from the burden of sin, and consequently, he labored to uh, avoid burdening the Thessalonians with any kind of difficulty. Not because he had no rights, he was an apostle and he had a right to demand support from them and help from them, but because he wanted through his life to show something of the truth of the gospel. He wanted through his own humility to proclaim the gospel in a way that was uh, where his life would support the message that he preached. We can see how important this point is in the following verses where Paul reminds the Thessalonians of his exhortation and encouragement and his charge to them. He wrote, For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. As he preached the gospel, Paul did not simply call the Thessalonians to change their mind on matters of doctrine. He also challenged them to change their lives in matters of practice. He signifies this with the language of walking, which is a euphemism for a manner of life. Walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, it just communicates this is the, that you live your life That is, in a manner worthy of God, you live your life in a new way in light of this fact that God has now called you into his kingdom. We may surmise that he was charging them to live as he himself lived. 
with that uh, strange and awesome combination of confidence and humility that becomes one who is at this once a citizen of God's kingdom and at the same time a servant of others. So we see that the gospel is a proclamation that calls us to a new kind of life. Paul exemplified that in his life, but he also called the Thessalonians to adopt this same frame of mind. In sum, then, as we consider these four aspects of the gospel, we see that Paul presents the gospel as a truth to be proclaimed, a trust we have been given, a treasure to be shared, and a message that we must live. But these descriptions still leave us only with a vague notion of the gospel's content. Though I briefly stated its content by way of a summary, let us consider its content more carefully by looking back to Act 17, where we read about Paul's entrance into Thessalonica. So turn there with me to Act 17. I'll read the passage again. We read it last week, and I, I think this, is, uh, this will prove relevant as we consider Paul's uh, message to the Thessalonians because he constantly calls to mind these events that Luke describes here. Again, in Acts 17, beginning in verse 1, we read, And when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now, in actuality, what we see here is that when Paul preached, I'm sorry, when Paul preached in Thessalonica, he preached a two-point message. It, when we consider the content of the gospel, we can frame it in a number of ways. We can outline it, uh, as many have, by uh, you know, with, with the terms creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. These terms follow along the broad biblical storyline. We can also outline it with headings God, man, Christ, and faith. It's a more systematic approach to the text, or to, to the gospel. And I commend those basic outlines to you as you seek to present it with clarity. You can find some of them on the back table, uh, on the gospel tracts, those pamphlets uh, that are back there, which will help you to frame the way in which you present the gospel. Particularly, I might commend to you the one written by Greg Gilbert entitled, What is the Gospel?, where he lays it out with clarity that will help you to frame your own presentation of the gospel. But in Acts 17, we see that Paul actually has really two headings under which he structures his gospel presentation. Two headings stated like this, and I've stated these before to you. Jesus is the Christ, therefore he had to suffer, die, and rise. As we present the gospel to others, we're trying to explain and persuade them of these truths, explain what these truths mean to them, and explain to them why these things are in fact true. Now, Paul actually began with the second point, that the Christ had to suffer, die, and rise. We saw that in 
Peter, in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 in a prior week as well, where Peter sought to prove that Jesus is the Christ by arguing that it was necessary that the Christ should suffer and die and rise. Here, likewise, Paul begins with this point. Again, I'll read it to you. He says, it says in verse 2 and 3, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now, we do need to note Paul's context. He preached this message in a synagogue. That is, he was preaching to Jews and to Greeks who were familiar with the Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. They knew and expected one called the Christ to come because the prophets had predicted his coming. Therefore, Paul was able to assume that they had this base level of knowledge. As one of my professors once put it this way, they knew that the Christ would come. They only needed the answer to the one question, who is the man? In order to answer that question, Paul knew that they need to understand the necessity of the cross. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer, die, and rise. And this was something he showed them from Scripture. Notice that he attempted to persuade them. That is his, and that his efforts to persuade them were rooted in Scripture. He reasoned from the Scriptures. Paul labored to explain and to prove the necessity of Christ's death and resurrection. Now, we can assume that he used passages like Psalm 16 and Psalm 22, Psalm 110, or Isaiah 53. These were prominent in any uh, early Christian presentation of the gospel. Any time the early, the early church was seeking to show the necessity of the death and resurrection of Christ, they would have made reference to passages like these. And we can suspect that these also informed Paul's presentation of this truth in that synagogue in Thessalonica. Luke doesn't give us all of the details of that presentation, but we can safely assume that those, were, uh, those passages like that figured largely in it. We can also look to letters like Galatians and Romans and presume safely that uh, the, his presentation of the gospel probably followed something rather similar to what he wrote in those particular letters. However he presented it, though, to the Thessalonians, we can say with confidence that he spoke concerning the person and work of Christ. He sought to persuade them of these two basic truths, that Jesus is the Christ and that he had to suffer, die, and rise. Now, let me suggest to you that we would do well to present the gospel in a similar way. That, but, however, we do need to consider our context. We do need to recognize that uh, we're not always, and we're, in our context, we're probably never preaching the gospel in a synagogue like Paul was. And so we need to consider uh, what people would understand, what's their base level of knowledge. We can even see later on in Acts 17 and verse 6 and 7 how when the, uh, the Jews were stirring up a crowd and they, they, they came to the authorities in Thessalonica, they actually translated Paul's message for those, for those uh, uh, Roman um, authorities. They said, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king. Jesus. You see, they understood that when Paul said that Jesus is the Christ, he was proclaiming him to be king. He was proclaiming him to be Lord of all. He was proclaiming him to be the Son of God who was appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. 
In fact, Paul would make this very point later in Acts chapter 17 when he came into Athens. You can just look down the page a little bit at Acts 7, uh, 17 verse 31. After Paul uh, gave a basic outline of God's dealings with the Gentile nations, Paul made this point concerning Jesus saying, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. You see there in that word, appointed, the concept of the Christ. The word Christ translates the Hebrew Messiah. It means anointed one, and it refers to an anointed king. And so here, as he speaks of one whom God has appointed, who will judge the world in righteousness, he is proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, even if he's not using those words. Then he says, of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul doesn't, in, Acts, in, in, in Athens, get into all of the details that we see concerning his death and resurrection, at least not with those who were there hearing him publicly. Those who, uh, who sought to understand more, we can uh, safely assume that he went into uh, further detail about those things. But at the very least, he was proclaiming Jesus as the Christ to these Athenians as well, even if he wasn't using those terms. And we should do the same, but we do need to consider our context as we seek to convey the message of the gospel. What are we trying to persuade people of? We're trying to persuade people of the Lordship of Christ. We're trying to persuade people of who He is, that He is the Son of God, fully God, fully man, that He is the one who came in the course of time, in the fullness of time, as a man in our likeness, in order to give His life for us on the cross to atone for our sins, so that all who believe in Him might receive forgiveness of sins through Him, and that God raised Him from the dead, and that He has ascended to the right hand of the Father, from where He will return to judge the living and the dead. It's the basic idea of the gospel presentation, and it involves a call for the person who hears it to respond to it in faith. We explain it, and we seek to persuade people of it. That is the gospel that Paul proclaimed. It's the gospel we have received. It's the gospel that we must proclaim if we're to be faithful in this ministry that has been entrusted to us. Now, we've considered the message of the gospel, and we've briefly spoken about the motives and methods that are appropriate for gospel ministry. But return with me now to 1 Thessalonians 2, and we're going to look more closely at Paul's motivations and his methodology in gospel ministry. We're going to learn from him how it is that we should uh, labor in the work of evangelism. It would be convenient uh, to order this sermon by focusing first on his motives and his methods, but that's really not going to be possible because we're going to see that the motives, Paul's motives and his methods are um, inextricably uh, intertwined. They cannot be separated because it's the motivations that give rise to his methods. And so we're going to rather consider the motivations as they give rise to a method. And there are three. We're going to see Paul's boldness, his boldness in declaring the gospel, which is motivated by his confidence in God. We've already spoken a little bit about this. We're also going to see Paul's faithfulness to the trust that he's received, which is motivated by his desire for the approval of God. And finally, we're going to see Paul's Desire to serve others, which is motivated by his love for them. So first, let's look at the boldness of Paul as it's motivated by his confidence in God. He was confident in the power of God 
and in the truth of his word. And so he boldly proclaimed the gospel to the Thessalonians. We see this in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Paul here calls the Thessalonians to bear witness. They know his story. They know what he was like when he was in their midst. They know what happened to him at Philippi before he and Silas came down the Via Ignatia to Thessalonica. They were arrested by angry businessmen, confronted by a riotous crowd. They were stripped of their garments. They were beaten with rods. They were locked in prison. And you can see that in Acts chapter 16, verses 19 through 24. But God miraculously freed them from the prison. And after the magistrates discovered that they had violated Roman law by treating Roman citizens in this way, they pleaded with Paul and Silas to leave the city with an apology. This is what Paul means when he refers to his suffering and his shameful treatment at Philippi. In spite of all that, Paul did not change his methods at Thessalonica. He followed his custom as we saw in Acts 17.2. He entered the synagogue and he boldly preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. We might expect that he would change his methods. We might expect that he would reflect on his experience in Philippi and say, well, that didn't work out very well. Let me try a different way. Let me try a way that doesn't upset the people of this city. But he doesn't. He does what was customary for him to do because of his confidence in God. He says, we had boldness in our God. And this confidence was rooted in God's power, as I have said and in the faithfulness of God. Here Paul appeals to the truth of his message. Now, in the ancient world, uh, people who engaged in rhetoric loved to persuade. They loved to come into a town with a whole lot of pomp and circumstance. They'd come in with a big entourage, and as they came into town, they'd attract followers to themselves. They'd look like a big deal coming into town with so many people following them. And they would engage in various kinds of rhetoric, maybe even arguing for something they didn't really believe in just to uh, test their ability to persuade people of a position. We see this in our own day when we honor a lawyer who is very good at winning court cases, whether or not the truth is on his side. Or we see this even in debate teams. When, when a student joins a debate team and that student is assigned an argument, whether or not the student believes in that argument, he or she has to make, an argu- make that argument uh, for or against based on what they're assigned. And the whole purpose of that is to hone one's own ability, ability to persuade others through the use of rhetoric. In the Greco-Roman world, they valued this. But that's not Paul's methodology. He doesn't rest on his own rhetorical power. He doesn't rest on his own ability to persuade others whether or not the truth is on his side. He's confident that his message is true. And so he proclaims it. He labors to persuade based on what really is not simply because he's chosen to adopt a particular message. And because of that, because he really is persuaded of the truth of his message, he's confident in proclaiming that message. The Christian gospel does not rest on our ability to persuade. It rests on the simple truth that God has spoken, and he cannot lie. It does not spring from a mistake or evil or guile, and this should motivate us to speak the gospel with confidence. 
It should lead us to proclaim the message we have believed and trust the results to God. Even if we don't know all the details, even if we don't know how to perfectly exegete a text like Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53, we can be confident that this word that God has spoken through his messengers like Paul and Peter and this word that he revealed to us through his son, Jesus Christ, is true. And so we can proclaim it with that same kind of boldness. It doesn't mean, however, that we need to engage in the kind of preaching that Paul engaged in. For instance, not everyone needs to go out and engage in open-air preaching. We actually see that Paul didn't make that his, uh, his first order of business when he came into a town. And even when he did preach in a place like the Areopagus in Athens in an open-air setting, it was expected that people would engage in that kind of practice. But Paul began by going to a synagogue, a place where you'd be expected to speak about God's word. And then he would go into a public place where you would expect people to stand up and speak publicly. That's not what Paul's speaking about when he speaks about his boldness. In this context, he's speaking about his boldness to preach a message that got him beaten up. And to preach it again and again, whether people arrested him, or insulted him, or mistreated him, or threatened his life, or hurled stones at his head, or tried to kill him. Paul was bold to preach this gospel because he knew it was true and because he knew the power of God and he trusted it. And that's what we're called to do as well. We can do it in uh, accordance with our own gifting, in accordance with our own ability, in a natural way that would be... Um, the way that we would normally engage with our friends and with our neighbors and our colleagues. You might sit down in the break room with a colleague at work and start a conversation with that person about faith, about Christ, about what you believe, sharing your testimony and talking about why you believe the gospel to be true. You might write a letter to a friend or a family member urging them to, uh, to change their mind about the gospel. You might engage in all sorts of practice. Maybe invite your neighbors over for dinner. There are all kinds of natural ways for you to engage in that kind of gospel ministry that would be normal in our culture, in our society. And as you do that, you can boldly hold forth the gospel to these people, knowing that it doesn't depend on you and your ability to present it. God is the one who causes people to believe the gospel by his power. And he calls us to be faithful as messengers. This leads to the second uh, method, which is motivated by a desire for the approval of God. Faithfulness in this trust that we have received, motivated by a desire for God's approval. You see this in verse 4, where Paul continues through verse 8, saying, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, that we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Notice how Paul contrasts his approach with an approach that focuses on the praise of men. He does not flatter for the sake of the gospel in order to win an audience or to make someone amenable to his message. He doesn't modify the message. He doesn't water it down in order to appease people. He also does not seek to use it as a means to make himself rich or to, uh, to make people respect him and respect him as a great orator, a great rhetorician, or a great philosopher. There were many people in the 
Roman world who are doing just that. But that's not Paul's uh, purpose. That's not his aim. That's not his motivation. He's not putting on a mask, a pretense, in order to satisfy some greedy desire. He does not even demand what is his right. The Thessalonians know this, for they have witnessed his actions. What is more, God knows this, for he has searched Paul's heart and tested him. His motives are pure. He seeks praise from God and God alone. And this is his chief motivation. It should be ours. But the question then arises, how can we learn to follow his example? How can we be people like Paul, who are tested by God and approved and entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ? As we've noted, Paul understood that he had received a special trust. And he also notes that God tested him. He doesn't give us the details of what, uh, what that test was like and when that happened and how God did that. But we can be sure that when God tested Paul, just as when he tests us, he will not find us perfect. He will not find us without flaw. When God tests us, he surely finds impurity, impure motives. Uh, he, but when we submit to his testing... He tests us the way that gold is tested when it's passed through a fire. You see, you can test a precious metal in the fire, and in the process, it's purified. The impurities are removed. What is gold endures, what is not is removed. Neither Paul nor us can perfectly pass God's test. Paul's not making that claim. But he has been tested by God and purified by him, and his motives are pure. He doesn't tell us, as I said, how God did that, but we can safely assume that God tested him in the way that he tests all of his servants through the furnace of his word. So how can we go through a similar testing? Let me commend some passages to you from the Psalms. For in the Psalms we see from David's pen ways in which we can submit ourselves to God's testing, to his purifying testing. In Psalm 19, verse 14, for instance, David wrote, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David prayed that God would so work in him that what he said and what he thought in his heart would be acceptable to God. And therefore he recognized that even for this to be true, he needed God to graciously work in his life. We see this really clearly in Psalm 51, for instance, in Psalm 51.10, after David sinned so grievously in the matter with Bathsheba and Uriah. He prayed, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He, in that case, recognized that the only way that he could pass God's test was through repentance and through God's gracious forgiveness through God's gracious, sanctifying work in his life. He recognized that he needed God to refine him if his heart and spirit were to be right before God. Again, in Psalm 139, in verses 1 through 2, David writes these words, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. David also recognized and acknowledged that there's nothing hidden from God. No thought in our heart, no idea that we have, no motivation uh, that moves us is hidden from God. But all is open to his penetrating sight. And yet David submitted to this. He did not try to get away from it. For he concludes that psalm in verse 23 and 24 with these words. Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be in any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It has been said that all of mankind's most impenetrable secrets lie inside the head. But in the language of Scripture, we must say that those impenetrable secrets lie within the heart. Yet they are not impenetrable to God. He searches and tests our hearts. And again, as it's been said, resistance is futile. Submission is recommended. For God purifies the heart that submits to his penetrating sight. So let me encourage you to let texts like these from the Psalms guide you as you submit to God's penetrating gaze. Let them form your thoughts and your words as you pray to him. That he might test you and approve you. Just as Paul was tested and approved and entrusted with this gospel. Use these words that David wrote to form your thoughts and prayers as you ask God to work in your heart with purifying grace. You see, you don't earn God's approval by your own disciplined efforts. He does not test you and approve you to be a witness to his grace because you have no need of grace. He tests you and approves you to speak of his grace as one who knows his grace. Even his testing and approval is an act of purifying grace. His approval is not something we deserve or earn. It is grace from first to last. But what a wonderful grace that it is. And the experience of that grace should motivate gospel faithfulness. Now, we should acknowledge it is possible for people to preach the gospel from a wrong motivation for their own selfish reasons. Paul recognized this in his letter to the Philippians. In Philippians 1, 15 through 18, he wrote, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What do you think Paul said to this? How do you think he responded to this? I think most of you know. He said only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Indeed, some preached the gospel for their own selfish reasons, even hoping to cause Paul pain. But he still rejoiced to know that Christ was proclaimed. He did not object to their preaching, even if their motives were impure. But I hope for something better for you, for us. For did not our Lord instruct us with these words from Matthew chapter 6 in his Sermon on the Mount? Words like this in Matthew 6 2. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And again in verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And once more in verse 16, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Do you see the point? Those who preach the gospel for the praise of men have their reward. The praise of men. What a hollow reward. It can't last. It can't endure. But the praise that comes from God the glory that he would give, that is an enduring reward. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as you share the gospel with your friends and neighbors, do it for that reward which cannot fail, never for any other. 
If this is your motivation, then you will seek to share the gospel in a way that is pleasing to God, not in a manner that flatters others, not in a manner that waters down the gospel so that others might praise you, but in a manner that is pleasing to Him. That would be your first and only concern, and it will dictate the way in which you carry out this trust that you have received. Finally, we see that Paul's method involved service. Involved service that was motivated by love for others. Paul was motivated not only by a desire to please God, but also by his love for the Thessalonians. So he served them sacrificially. Notice all of the terms of endearment that Paul uses to describe his work in bringing the gospel to the Thessalonians in verses 7 and 8. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Paul compares himself to a nursing mother with her child. It's difficult to imagine a more endearing image of affection and care. This was the character of Paul's ministry to the Thessalonians, and it surely mirrors Christ's own affection for his people. As a result of his affection, Paul did more than share the gospel with the Thessalonians. He shared himself. Surely he means that he put himself completely at their disposal in teaching them and encouraging them, and he asked nothing from them. Just as a mother with her newborn child dotes on her child and responds to its every cry and expects nothing from that child, he readily gave of himself to them. He would have readily given his life for them. As they received the gospel and matured under his teaching, he continued to sacrifice for them. He worked to sustain and support himself. He was making tents as his trade. And he also treated them with the affection of a father for his children. He didn't demand that they support him, you see. He didn't put any burden on them. He could have, but he chose not to, so that he might serve them further. And then he treated them like a loving father, encouraging them, exhorting them, challenging them, so they might mature and grow in Christ. It's important to note that Paul did not simply share the gospel, baptize them, and move on to another city. He, did, he remained long enough to instruct and train the Thessalonians. And there's an important lesson for us here as well. Gospel ministry is not simply about winning converts. It is about making disciples. Such a ministry requires time and energy and sacrifice. Paul was ready to make that sacrifice because he was motivated by a desire to see others prosper and benefit. In short, he was motivated by love. So he served them with sacrificial love. This should be the character of our work as well. For us, we don't share the gospel so we can add another name and number to our resume. Often in large churches and denominations, they gather statistics about how many baptisms they conducted that year and how many new members they had or lost in the prior year. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's very easy to lose sight of the person that is represented by the number. A minister's conceit may easily grow as he considers what appears to be fruitfulness, but those new converts may also be neglected in the process, since they've already been accounted for by the church, if the number is what he cares about. There seems to be little more to do. That kind of methodology doesn't involve sacrificial love. It's about building oneself up 
That's a selfish methodology. That's about, uh, about being able to claim, I converted so many people. I baptized so many people. I won so many people for Christ. Not about looking at the people who are coming to Christ and seeking what's best for them and seeking their growth and maturation. Let me simple, simply put it to you this way. Is that the way a mother and a father treat their children? They simply, the mother give birth to a child and say, on to the next one so I can see how many I can have and this one can go on his or her way. Of course not. She cares for that child. She raises that child. She does what is necessary to nurture that child so that child will grow and be healthy and mature. In the same way, a good father does not abandon his children in their infancy. He helps them to grow and mature by challenging them, by teaching them, by training them, by instructing them. And that's the character of Paul's gospel ministry, and it should be the character of ours. For we are disciples who are called to make disciples. But this requires time and energy and sacrificial love. And yet that is the kind of serving gospel ministry that is pleasing to God. That's the kind of ministry that will stand the test, that will receive the approval of God, even if it does not receive the approval of men. So we're beginning to see the outlines of an evangelistic strategy an evangelistic strategy that is founded in right motivations. Notice there's really nothing that is not already familiar. We tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ as clearly and completely as we can, without watering down the message. And we reason with them to the best of our ability from Scripture to show them the truth of this message. We do not adopt strategies or methods that are primarily results-oriented. We do not use trickery like a bait-and-switch tactic or a promotional plan that looks like a marketing campaign one might use to sell a new product. In other words, we do not begin with questions like these. How can I maximize the reach of my message? How can I get as many people through the door as possible? Not that we can never ask such questions, but primarily we must begin with our own motives. We ought to make it our chief aim to minister in a way that is pleasing to God, dependent on His grace, and loving towards others. So if you're wondering then, where do I begin? Let me suggest the following. First, begin by working to grow in your own knowledge of Scripture. Learn to show how Scripture points to Christ, how it makes clear the necessity of Christ's death and resurrection, why it was necessary, not just because it was predicted by the prophets, but how it was also necessary to accomplish our salvation. And learn how to call others to follow him, even as you seek to follow him in every way. In other words, start by growing in your own confidence in the gospel, by growing in your knowledge of the gospel as you see it from God's word. Second, as you grow in your own knowledge of scripture, pray that God would work in your life to refine and test you. And pray that he would work through you cause the gospel to go forth to others. We must pray in this process. We must look to God in prayer and seek for him to be the one who works in his power to bring the gospel to others. As you pray, engage in self-examination using the text that I suggested from Psalms. Give yourself to confession of sin in prayer and meditation upon God's word. 
And ask that the Lord would form you in such a way that your motivations would be pleasing to Him. Through this process, God will work in your life so that your life complements your witness as you testify the grace to the grace of Jesus. And lastly, consider your gifts. Consider how you might use your gifts to serve others. Remember that not everyone is called or gifted for the kind of ministry that Paul had. Some are able to teach. Some are good at starting conversations with complete strangers. Some are given to hospitality and acts of mercy. We saw a few weeks ago that from 3 John that this man Gaius became a partner, a fellow worker in the ministry of the gospel by extending hospitality to people, to traveling missionaries, to people who are going further on in the gospel work. He was a partner in gospel ministry, even though he was simply opening his home and providing meals to people in the early church. In the early church, Apollos was known as a gifted preacher, but Priscilla and Aquila were the more careful exegetes who took him aside to help him understand God's word more accurately. Lydia and Tabitha served with their resources. Barnabas was known as one who encouraged others, son of encouragement. The point I'm, I'm putting before you is that God gifts each one of us with different skills and different abilities. Just because one person is able to go out into the public square and preach the gospel with energy and enthusiasm and clarity and power doesn't mean that God gifts every one of us for that purpose. So as you grow in your knowledge of Scripture, and as you pray and seek for the Lord to refine you, also consider your gifts, consider your positioning, and pray that God would show you how to use your particular gifts for the sake of the gospel. If we as a church shall become faithful witnesses in our community, it's going to be a cooperative effort. But the motivation will be shared. The motivation will be one. Serving others and honoring God. Some will teach publicly. Some will instruct privately. Some will exhort. Some will encourage. Some will provide out of their means. And some will fervently pray. But we all will labor together for the sake of the gospel. God has entrusted this great treasure to us. May he make us faithful in carrying it out. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would make us faithful in carrying out this trust that you have given us. Father, I pray for every man and woman here that you would so work in us to refine us that we might become faithful workmen, faithful servants, faithful men and women who love to serve and love to share the gospel because we have known your love and so love others. Lord, we pray that you would so work in our lives in this way, that we might be a light in our community, not for our own glory and not for our own sake, but that you might be glorified in us as the world sees our satisfaction in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.